everyone. Welcome to the January 29th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Now, last week we had a great interview with Dr. Yanru Chen around expressive and receptive language abilities in those who are autistic and nonverbal. It was really an interesting insight on the similarities and differences and how people with autism who don't speak can understand versus communicate language. This week, unfortunately, though, you get just me. Tomorrow, January 30th, ASF, in collaboration with Autism Speaks, the Profound Autism Alliance, the National Council for Severe Autism, Stanford University, John Carroll University, and Fraser Behavioral Health, will be offering an hour-long presentation with plenty of time for discussion on a new tool to detect, document, and quantify severe and dangerous behaviors. There are many ways to do this that people have been doing for a while, and none of them are wrong per se, but some of them don't hit the mark, and many of them take a lot of time, have to be used by clinicians, which means they can be used in diagnosis and intervention situations, but not necessarily in regular clinical practice. So Dr. Tom Frazier at John Carroll University in Ohio developed something that's now being used in clinical practice, like at behavioral centers, and he and a clinician are going to talk about how it was developed and how it is being used in clinics right now. Now, in recognition of that event, today's podcast is going to focus on pharmacological drugs used to treat irritability. They focused on irritability in a recent meta-analysis and systematic review, but didn't actually define irritability. The dictionary calls it the quick excitability to annoyance, impatience, and anger. So in many cases of individuals with autism, that's aggression, which is one of the more challenging and dangerous behaviors associated with ASD. Right now, there are two medications FDA-approved used to treat irritability and aggression, and not surprisingly, they have the most evidence. Of course they do. They made it to the FDA to get approved. These two drugs are Risperdal and Abilify. One of these things the drugs have in common is they're both an agonist or they bind to the dopamine 2 receptor. Now, the dopamine system is associated with excitability and motor function. Clearly, that's a little oversimplistic, and it might be wrong based on the brain region, but generally, it's involved in those things, motor function, excitability, and turning things on in the brain. You would think that turning on the dopamine system in the brain would, in fact, excite the dopamine system, but in fact, what it does is actually activate a receptor that ends up slowing down the firing of dopamine neurons. So it actually slows down dopamine activity. The brain is feeling that the dopamine receptors are stimulated already, so there's no need to continue to keep them turned on. It suggests that the aggressive brain has too much dopamine activity, and slowing it down reverses that aggression. It also acts on the serotonin system, both of these drugs do, which is a neurochemical that is associated with emotion and mood. Now, it turns that down too, but targets the receptors that have been associated with schizophrenia and psychosis. Both of these drugs have been approved by the FDA, one in 2005 and one in 2006. But let's be clear, these drugs are far from perfect. You may know someone on Risperidone or Abilify that has the tendency to gain weight. They may be even obese. Weight gain that leads to obesity can further exacerbate health issues in those with autism. People sit still all right, and that probably improves their ability to pay attention and benefit from different behavioral interventions. And of course, not acting out aggressively improves their interaction with the world, which can be a positive thing. 
It also kind of causes sleepiness. Now, there have been many efforts to identify ways to lower the dose of Risperdal or Abilify by giving it with things like parent training or another drug, so the calming effects can be magnified, but the side effects can be lowered. These have been going on for years, and recently a review summarized and combined of how they are helping has, was just published, and that's the focus of today's podcast. Of course, as I mentioned, the most consistent findings of all are those that look at risperidone and Abilify independently and separately. They were able to reduce irritability, and, but of course the effect varied. Out of about 5,000 articles, the authors included those that had a treatment arm and a placebo group and that focused on irritability. That led to 60 articles to summarize with a total of 3,500 participants. There was about 47 per study. The age was anywhere between 2 and 43, and of course, most of them were male. Since they were looking at ways to reduce or knock down the dose of risperidone, they grouped the studies into the drug by itself versus placebo, risperidone with an adjunct therapy versus risperidone alone, a non-pharmacological intervention like a behavioral intervention versus a placebo, and a dietary supplementation versus placebo. The meta-analysis found that risperidone or risperdal, Abilify, and parent training, which is training done to parents to address irritability to prevent or address it at home, were all effective for the reduction of irritability. And that was compared to placebo or an inactive control. Risperidone and aripiprazole, which is the chemical name for Abilify, were the best, then parent training. They also identified several promising things to augment risperidone, but there was only one randomized controlled trial for each. So this means anything that was found needs to be replicated. One study does not mean it should be used in clinical practice. You should think about these things when you talk to your doctor, but it doesn't mean it will work. These adjuvant therapies include things like sulfoforane, timipramate, which is an anti-seizure and anti-migraine medicine, memantine, celecoxib, an anti-inflammatory, minocycline, which is an antibiotic, simvastatin, a high cholesterol drug, and a couple of other things I've never heard of, but you can buy on Amazon and health food stores. Again, number one, they were promising, meaning more studies need to be done. And number two, this does not mean you should go out and order any of them online and start taking them. So what it does say, though, is that there's a desperate amount of evidence needed to help those with irritability and aggression. There is not a one-size-fits-all model. Some people say neither of these drugs have worked or that the side effects were in too intense for them to tolerate. There have been studies to look at how to mitigate the bad side effects of these drugs. They're far from perfect, but in many cases, they're necessary. I wanted to touch on how researchers go about identifying and testing different drugs that might be effective for irritability and aggression. They don't just start with a placebo-controlled study. They have to be tested in model systems like rodents to determine if they're even safe or could be used in humans. So they have to show that they even have a chance of working in a person to be able to justify giving it to a person in a clinical trial. I heard someone say at this week's IACC meeting that autistic people are not mice. And no, they are not, and you are not. Which is why a certain amount of rigor and evaluation should go into studies to make sure that different 
interventions work in model systems before they're given to people. In order to do that, scientists need to create model systems, either through genetic mutations or different strains of animals likely to exhibit neurodevelopmental disorder-like behaviors. As we're talking about different drugs used to treat irritability and aggression, I'd like to explain the different ways that these behaviors are examined in model systems so it can be determined if the drug or drug combination is even worthy to be studied in people. That's why animal studies are so important. They help researchers understand the brain circuitry better of different model systems and then how behavior correlates to different types of brains and different circuitries of brain systems. Researchers don't just rely on animal models. There are other ways of looking at brain behavior correlations, but it's important to have a diversity of approaches so nothing is missed and scientists understand where to direct their efforts next. People are not mice, but mice and rats and other rodent animal models are definitely important to advancing and understanding and then interventions and supports for people with autism. So for example, aggression is tested in mice. Again, aggression is different in mice than it is in human. It's not, it's not exact to humans, but it doesn't actually have to be. Mice don't behave like humans. Mice interact with other mice and humans interact with other humans. Mice behavior is just different. One way to measure aggression in mice is to put each of them at one end of a long plastic tube, probably a clear plastic tube so everyone can see what's going on. The mice are not from the same litter. They've never seen each other before or the apparatus before. So what'll happen is they'll go into the tube because they like the feeling of being in a tube and they'll explore and they'll inspect each other and then likely one of them will attack the other mouse and the time it takes for the first mouse to back out of the tube or the time for the mouse to attack the other mouse will be recorded. Attacking and aggression is tracked. Another way is to take a mouse that is its home cage, it's called a resident, and introduce a new mouse that it's never seen before, an intruder. Typically, the resident will attack the intruder. No, autistic people are not prone to attack people they do not know in their own home as a rule. However, this is a behavior of a mouse and it needs to be understood to determine if it's even worthwhile examining in humans. All of these interactions are videotaped and sometimes a person will code them, sometimes it will be analyzed by a computer program. You can also look at things like defensive posturing, aggressive posturing, tail rattling, and where the animal attacked. You can look at biting and boxing and mounting, which are all aggressive behaviors in rodents. Attacking on the flank is different than on the head. There has been modification of these model behaviors for things like PTSD, where the protocol is adjusted. It likely activates different areas of the brain. And of course, this aggression can alter social behavior later in these mice, which is why all of these things need to be taken in consideration of animal models of social interaction. But these behavioral tests are critical to better understand what can help people with aggression and get better drugs on the market to help people with irritability and aggression. The main message is if you need help with irritability and aggression, there's basically two drugs available that are known to help and they have side effects. Behavioral therapy and parent training are also known to be somewhat effective, but families deserve better treatments, a mix of these treatments and a variety of different treatments to help prevent aggressive behaviors. And yes, I agree that totally involves understanding where the behavior originated in the first place and trying to modify or eliminate environmental triggers 
or medical causes for aggression, of course. But they also may mean medication, and in order to find those medications, animal models are critical. So thank you for listening and talk to you next week.